Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Please, we're just continuing in the book of Acts, and uh, I want to look at the where, where we left off with, with verse 16, and uh, just to remind you, uh, Paul is on his third missionary journey, it's the end of his third missionary journey, and uh, he's done a lot of great things so far in the book of Acts. So far in the book of Acts, I would venture that he's... Uh, done more, and God has used him in ways that are more powerful than any of us have done in our own individual lives. And yet we're going to realize, uh, beginning with today's message as we look here in Acts chapter 20, that Paul does not consider that he has even begun his ministry. That this first phase, he sees it all as just a first phase and just preparation for the real ministry that God has called him to. And we're going to be talking about that how important it is for us to cross the finish line successfully. That you know that it wouldn't matter if you're running a race, say a marathon, because Paul compares this to a long distance race, and you've been in first place throughout the whole, the entire event, and as you come down to the last mile, you, you know, do like the hare and the hare and the tortoise story, and you just fall down and take a nap, and you don't even finish the race. Because nobody would care and nobody would remember how great you ran the first stage, how great things were in the beginning. And Paul is very convinced that he has to finish this race. He has to go to Jerusalem by way of Antioch, and eventually he will make his way to Rome. He doesn't know how he's going to get to Rome. He doesn't know what kind of persecutions he's going to go through. But he knows because Jesus told him at the very beginning of his ministry, way back in Acts chapter 9, which isn't a whole lot of chapters back, but it's a whole lot of years back in the story of the book of Acts. Way back at the very beginning, uh, after his conversion on the road to Damascus, the Lord showed him that he would stand before kings and before great men. And Paul understood that to mean that eventually he would stand before the Caesar in Rome, which is indeed what he did. But Jesus also said that you will suffer great things for my name's sake. So he was acquainted with suffering, and he expected that he would suffer great things for the sake of Jesus. You always have to remember in life, no matter how difficult it is, and the more difficult it is, if God's calling you to do it, then there should be some, not that we enjoy suffering, not that we, uh, Jesus himself, you know, didn't want to go to the cross. He, He asked the Father if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, then that would be great, but not my will be done, but your will be done. But if we're going through those difficult times and the Lord is allowing us and calling us to go through those things, the Bible promises us that you will not be tempted uh, beyond what you are able to handle. So if you're going through it, that means that God deems you worthy and able to handle it with that level of faith where you are, with the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And you should always say to yourself, well, somebody's got to do it. And if God's chosen me to go through this, then that's an honor for me. And Paul embraces that as an honor. Um, So I want to look at a speech 
or uh, some sharing that Paul did with the elders of Ephesus. But I'm going to divide it into two messages because there's a lot here and I don't want to give you too much at once. And the title of both of these messages is going to simply be what a man or a person of God looks like. And when I say a man of God, please, all you ladies understand that I'm including you in that also. Uh, so what a man of God looks like. Um, for many years, when we did Bible colleges, and I still do those things, and uh, uh, whenever we had lessons on uh, being a pastor, there was always this lesson that I would do out of this passage of Scripture called the pastor's heart. And I love this passage of Scripture because Paul really bears his heart to the elders of Ephesus. And he tells them what his motivation has been and what's been on his heart all the time during his ministry and how he's acted. So as we look at what Paul says, uh, we have an opportunity to uh, see the character of a man of God. And uh, we have the opportunity to see what the heart of a man of God is like. So this is the pastor's heart. It's what a man of God looks like. From this moment on, in the book of Acts, all the way to the end of the book of Acts, we read what is basically the final chapter in the life of Paul. Everything going forward is only about Paul in the story of the book of Acts. We read that Luke has been traveling with him. The things that Luke is recording, of course, he's recording them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. But he's not hearing these things secondhand. He was a first-hand witness to these things, and he records the things. There's a lot of details in here, details about a shipwreck, a lot of things that almost get Book of Leviticus on you when you're reading it. It seems like, well, what do I need to read about all the names of these islands and this shipwreck stuff? But it's a really good story. And I want you to pay attention to the story as we're going through to the end of the book of Acts. I don't know how long that will take us to get to the end of the book of Acts. But this is the final chapter in the life of Paul. Uh, the book of Acts closes with him in prison in Rome. It does not tell us about his execution in Rome. History tells us about his execution. History tells us that both Peter and Paul were executed by, put to death by the emperor Nero. And Peter, for example, when he was executed, he was to be crucified. And he asked to be crucified upside down, saying that I am not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord was. And this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus told him at the end of the Gospel of John, that Jesus told him that your arms would be stretched out and you will be led away to a place that you do not want to go, that you will die for my sake. And that happened in the life of Peter. In the life of Paul, because Paul was a Roman citizen, he was not put to death on a cross because a cross is the death of a criminal and no Roman citizen could be executed on a cross, no matter what his crimes were. So he was given the honorable or the merciful death of being beheaded. And I'm sure that that's even better, but it sure would be a lot quicker than dying on a cross. And he was beheaded uh, at the hand of, of course, the emperor himself didn't do it, but by command of the Emperor Nero. And history tells us that the last thing that Nero said to Paul is, I will wipe the name of Paul off the face of the earth so that no one ever hears of Paul again. And as I've told you before, I heard this a long time ago in a, a very a good minister's message. I never forgot it. He said, and today people name their children Paul and their dogs Nero. At least I don't know of anybody that's ever named their son Nero. So that didn't happen, did it? 
so the book of Acts leads us up to that moment, or almost to the moment of his execution. But what we see here in the book of Acts in these last chapters is the inside story. It's, it's stuff you wouldn't know about Paul if God had not put it into Luke to write these things for us. It's the story of how Paul fulfills his destiny, the real destiny that Jesus has called him to. All the things we've heard before, all three of these missionary journeys are just preparation for what God has for him. And I really want you to get that in your heart today. I don't care how old you are. I don't care uh, you know, what great things you've done in life or what things you've failed in in life. I want you to believe, because it's the message of the gospel, that the greatest days for the Christians, the greatest days for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are ahead of us. They are not behind us. We have not finished our race yet. This tells us the story of what we might call Paul's make or break moment. Because he has the opportunity, and you'll see that everyone in the church even, we'll, we'll get to this later, but all the people around him in the church are telling him, do not go to Jerusalem. You will suffer. You will be bound in chains. You will be in prison. And they're begging with him uh, to not do these things. And, and their motivation is right. I understand that. They love Paul. They care about him. They have a plan for the church. You know, we can't afford to lose Paul. He's a great apostle, a great teacher. You know, the, the man that is so bold that he'll go anywhere and found churches and he can preach the gospel in a way that others can't preach. He has this great education. He has these great gifts. But it's very interesting how in the scripture, and we need to understand this in our lives, that Jesus isn't interested in our great talents and our great gifts as much as he's interested in our obedience and how he takes those things in our lives that are the most valuable and he crushes them to power, you know, or better scriptural reference would be he refines them with fire and he brings out the real gold that we didn't even know was on the inside of us. So Paul is willing to die and he's willing to suffer. Everyone's trying to stop him from doing it. There's every temptation, even the rulers that he's going to stand before and he will be judged by kings are telling him, we can just let you go if you want to be let go. We'll read this later. But Paul says, no, I appeal to Caesar in Rome. And because he appealed to the Supreme Court, appealed to Caesar in Rome, they were forced to send him to Rome, even though he could have just walked free that day. But he knew what God's will was. And how did he know the voice of the Spirit? How did he know the will of God? Because he had heard what Jesus said to him in the beginning. He had the Bible. He had the word of God to stand on. And he learned to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in his life. So we see how Paul finishes his race and he carries his cross all the way to the end. And he lives today as an overcomer. Uh, let's look at verses 16 and 17. I'm going to take this couple of verses at a time. What I want to give you today are four qualities of the man of God. And I want you to hear these things and look at them in your lives and see how God wants us to walk in these days that we live in. So let's look at verse 16, verses 16 and 17. It says, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. Remember, he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. He believes he has an appointment with God in Jerusalem. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. Uh, he knew he'd get bogged down if he stopped there in, in Ephesus and everybody would be wanting him to preach and teach and he's in a hurry to go. 
for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and you can look on a good Bible map and find all these places if you want. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, and I'll read that in just a minute. So he doesn't want to pass up the opportunity to impart something into the lives of these elders in Ephesus. But he cannot afford the time to go to Ephesus, so he calls them to himself. And he begins to share with them the things that are on his heart, and there opens up for us this portrait of a man of God that is, is practically unequaled anywhere in the Scripture. So it's an exciting thing to read, and I'm very thankful that the Lord allowed that and chose for that to be in the Scripture for us to read. So before we look at what Paul says to them, I want to talk about these elders just for a few minutes. He calls these elders to himself. The Greek word here is presbyteros. It's where we get the word Presbyterian. He calls the Presbyterians to himself, the elders of the church. The reason why he calls them, and we'll see this in this, is that he is preparing to pass the torch to the next generation. He knows that they will never see him again, and he's going to tell them, you will never see my face again. He knows that he will never be in Ephesus again. And I want to remind you, we've already looked at this, but Ephesus was the main church of all of Asia. This was a center for the revival, a center for uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and where people were coming to Bible school and being taught and trained in the Word of God and going out from there to start churches in other places. So he knows the importance of Ephesus. Timothy will be left in Ephesus. And we believe, we know from history, history tells us that Timothy continued the ministry in Ephesus for many years to come. The mother of Jesus, Mary, uh, went to Ephesus. John, who was in charge of taking care of her, went to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, history or tradition tells us that that's where Mary died. So this is a very important church. And Paul knows that the moment has come when he needs to pass the torch to the next generation. He calls them elders. Look for me, with me uh, just for a minute at verse 28. And, and we're going to get to this in the next message. But it says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you see that in verse 28? So there are three titles given to these people, to these men from Ephesus. The first title is they are called elders. The second title is they are called overseers. And the third title is they are called shepherds. The Greek word overseer is episkopos. And it's where we get the word episcopalia. And it is what usually is translated into English as bishops. And so we see that scripturally, no matter what we do with our church hierarchy today, what we want to call it today, every elder is a bishop. Every bishop is an elder, and every elder and every bishop uh, is a shepherd. He is a pastor, and in reality, the term elder refers to who a person is. He has been called to be an elder. Now, I want to challenge you today not to just think of the elders that are officially written down as elders in our church. I, I really want you to see that each one of you are elders. Every one of you, even you young people, you are elders in some sphere. 
Someone is looking up to you. We might just use the word today, leaders. You know, I know Floyd just got back from a leadership camp, right? <laughs> and, and it's hard to embrace that in my life. I'm a leader. You know, somebody is following me for, for good or for evil. Somebody is looking at me. Somebody is following me. <clears throat> it may just be a couple of people right now. Maybe a lot of people. It, it may be more people than you even realize. And as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a Christian, God has called you to be a leader. He has called you to be an elder. And an elder is someone who's just older than other people. It's who you are. You're supposed to have some experience, some knowledge, some ability to lead people to Jesus Christ. It's what it means to make disciples of all nations. It's what it means to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So please embrace that today. It's a great calling. But it is a great responsibility. So that's who you are. You are an elder. But bishop or overseer and shepherd or pastor, these describe what you do. Okay? You know, somebody can have a title that describes who he is, and it can be a title that describes what he does. But they all refer to the same per person. So what does an elder do? If somebody's following you, and you're a leader for somebody, and you are, you know, like, I'm not going to do it, but I've got to have you raise your hand and say, no, I don't feel like I'm a leader. Raise your hand if you don't feel like you're a leader. And if I know you well enough, I could tell you specifically, that's a lie. That's not true. There's this person and that person that's looking up to you. You know, they're following you. And we've had our grandkids with us for the last nine days. They wanted to stay for 10 days, but we're only giving them nine. And uh, <laughs> we're bringing them back for super sober. And, uh, you know, it's so obvious to Tanya and me that those two little boys, they look up to Frank, Uncle Frank and Aunt Sasha. And, you know, I think that Frank and Sasha realize that, but whether they realize that or not, they look up to them as leaders, okay? So what does an elder or a leader do? His job is to be an overseer, a bishop. So an overseer is somebody that watches out for others, that protects them. He takes the oversight. It does not mean that you whack them over the side of the head or in the butt and drive them around all the time. That's not how somebody shepherds sheep, is it? You know, anybody that knows anything about sheep knows that you don't just beat them with sticks. You lead them. You guide them, right? And so it is with training of any animals. And that the training of animals and agricultural things are huge in the Bible. You know, you don't force tomatoes to grow. You just do what you can to, to hope and to take care of them. And you adjust to whatever the atmospheric conditions are, whether there's rain or not rain and all these things. But you can't make the tomato grow, right? And so you can't make people grow. You take oversight over them. And you do that by being a shepherd, by being a pastor for them, okay? So these are the people that Paul is calling to himself. And he's going to reveal to us in very great detail, how he's been this for them. Go with me just for a moment over to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Because Peter writes very well about, the, about what I've been talking to you about just now. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, the presbyteros, or presbyteros, I exhort the leaders among you, we, we could say today, those people that are in leadership, whether they know it or not. I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. The glory and the sufferings go together. And he says, shepherd, he uses it as a verb, be a pastor, be a shepherd for the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, that's the bishop part of it. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Not because somebody made you sign up to sell wristbands, but because you know this is an opportunity, and I'm being honest with you, this is an opportunity to be alive to this community. You know, not because you're under compulsion, but you do this voluntarily. Now, when we start out in life, uh, the younger we are, the more things we're doing under compulsion. But that's a mark of growth in the Lord. It's a mark of growth that we begin to do things voluntarily. And uh, we're not going to get to it today, but this whole passage that Paul's speaking to them about says that Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it's a mark of growth when we understand that in giving to others, that's the real blessing. So he says, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain. You don't have to ask how much you're going to pay me to do it. But with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, so you don't whip them, you don't beat them over the head with a stick, but proving to be examples to the flock, you lead them by example. And when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, because it's a two-way street. You know, there's we're, we're not dealing with the youngers right now so much, but if, I will tell you this, that if you want to have authority in life, then you have to take responsibility. They go hand in hand. There is no true authority without responsibility. And if you want people to respect you, then you respect others. If you honor your father and mother, if you honor your leaders, if you honor those that God has put in your life as elders, then you will be an elder to others. That's just how it works, okay? So that's what Peter said. Just as Jesus washed the, washed the feet of his disciples, and you'll remember that story, so all leaders, all who would be elders in the body of Christ, must wash the feet of those they lead. I believe that today there's... A generation of youth and this generation is literally wandering in a desert wandering in a wilderness where there's a complete lack of vacuum of leadership we see it in our nation we see it all around us and I believe that whether they know it or not they're looking to the church they're looking to local churches they're looking to this church and they're asking a question, and it seems like we don't have an answer to that question, because what they're asking is, where have all the men of God gone, and who will pass a torch to us if the fires already gone out? What torch will be left for us? I could give you thousands of examples from things like the debt of this nation that we're passing on to the future generations to the morality of this nation that we're passing on to the future generations, to the lies of this nation that we're passing on to the future generations, to show you that there is a desperate lack of leadership, and it's infected the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to share with you now, I'm going to give you four qualities that won't take very long, from what Paul said to them, what kind of man Paul was. 
what kind of man he was, that is what a man of God looks like. I want to suggest to all the young people here that when you get older and you're looking for a husband, or if you're a boy, you're looking for a wife, that you find a person who mirrors these qualities. Maybe not perfectly. I mean, we could go through Acts and find that Paul wasn't perfect in all these things. None of us are perfect in all these things. But this is how he lived his life. And this is how um, this is what a man of God looks like. I'm not even going to talk to you about how to be this person of God. You know how to be this person of God. And I just want you to see what a person of God looks like. So let's look at verse 18. And I'll read verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. So the first quality I want to give to you, and you could use different words to describe this. I just picked these out for the sermon. They're in your notes. But the first quality is that a man of God or a person of God is steadfastly present. Okay? Just think about this. How many homes do not have a father in them? How many homes do not have a mother in them? How many homes are broken up just because, even if they all live in that same house, uh, they're not really ever together? You know, how, how much in our generation has it changed? I, I see it. it it's, it's, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you had a meal together. Most people in here would say, yeah, that's how it was. Back in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up, <clears throat> some of you would go back further and say, oh yeah, for sure that's how it was. You sat down and ate together every single day. And you had manners at the table. And you said, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And then you had to put a, learn how, where to put the napkin, where to put the fork. I don't even remember all that stuff anymore. But you had to learn that stuff. And it wasn't just my house. It was like every house I went to, all my friends' house. We made fun of that stuff because it was funny to us. That mom was teaching us manners. We had to go to this place called the Pink House of all things. And this is why I was in junior high. And we had to learn to dance. And we had to learn to ask a girl out for a date and all these things and how to do it in this really super 19th century, old-fashioned way. You know, I don't regret that someone wanted to teach us manners. Someone wanted to teach us how to be courteous. Someone wanted to teach us things that were old-fashioned. I definitely haven't been perfect in those things in my life, but at least I know when I fail in those things because someone told me this is the standard. This is what a gentleman is supposed to be like, or you know, in the case of women, what a lady is supposed to be like. We had to learn to bow, the girls had to learn to curtsy, all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing, we were always together. You know, we went on vacations together, we ate together, and every Sunday, the whole family got together, and every other Sunday, it was at great-grandma's great house. Um, when we went to Oregon on this trip, my uh, sister and her, her husband, they're moving to Florida. And they've been living in Oregon for over Oregon for over 20 years. So uh, she asked me, she said, would you like to take some of the furniture that we have because uh, we don't really have a place to take it with us. And I said, well, what do you have? And she told me about this stuff she had. I didn't even know she had. So uh, after my parents died, one of the things was she had the dining room table of our great grandmother. And still in really nice condition. So we brought that home. We don't even have room for it, but we set it up. Anyway, we had a little plan for how it would be. It looks really pretty there. But it meant so much to me. 
not because it's a nice antique table. It meant so much to me because that's where our family gathered together. We were together at that table. And I remember the presence of God. I remember the prayers. I remember the meals, the food that was there. And it was very important to me in my life. So Paul says this, and I just really want you to focus on this. He says, you know that I was always with you. Just think about that. You know I was always with you. Not only does he say, I was always with you. He said, I made sure that you knew I was always with you. I made sure that you knew that I am present in your life. You didn't always like it, maybe. But you knew I was always going to be there. I would never let you down. I would never fail you. He says, I was always serving you by serving the Lord. Notice that. If we're only serving people, we're going to fail at that. And we're going to get really worn out and tired from doing it. But if we're serving the Lord when we're serving those people, then the Lord is our reward. And even when people are ungrateful, even when people don't say thank you, even when people don't receive what we have to say, we know that we were doing it unto the Lord. I can be very honest with you. I, I promise you this. Jump that mic. <laughs> if there was only one person here this morning, actually, this is the truth. If nobody even showed up this morning, I would preach this exact same sermon. I promise you that. And we'd have it recorded. And if nobody ever watched it online, I'd still record it and have it online. Just because someday somebody might watch it because I'm not preaching it for you. I'm preaching it because this is what the Lord put on my heart. And the added bonus of preaching the gospel is I'm preaching this to myself. If you get convicted, know this, I get convicted by the same thing I'm preaching. The Lord's speaking to me in my life. So when we serve others like Paul served others, we're really serving the Lord. And he says that I served you with, or served the Lord uh, I served you by serving the Lord with humility of mind. Notice that he says humility, with all humility. Well, the Greek word there means humility of mind. So go with me just for a minute over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, where we see the same Greek word that means a humility of mind. He's not talking about a humility of circumstances. He's not saying you have to dress shabby or be poor. Uh, you know, he's not saying that you have to walk around uh, with a frown on your face all the time and, you know, just look humble, which is usually just pride. He's saying that I served with the humility of mind. My thoughts were humble. And if you want to know what that means, he tells us in Philippians chapter 2. The Holy Spirit signifies to us the meaning of these words. Look at verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness. Don't you agree the world preaches a completely opposite doctrine to us? Everything, do it from selfishness. Look out for yourself, number one. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So that means to go against your human nature and take on God's nature. But with humility of mind, those three words are really one word in Greek, and it's the same word he uses over there in Acts. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, or literally these feelings in yourselves, which were also in Christ Jesus. 
who although existed in the form of God, etc., you know that verse. So what does it mean when Paul says, I serve with humility? He says, what it means is I put you first, and you know that I put you first. How many parents have said something like that to their children this week? It's like one of those standard parental things that you say, you know, in some form or another, you remind your children of the fact that we're always putting you first. And you know that we're putting you first. And there's a reason for that, because someday you'll have children, and you need to raise them in the discipline and the admonition of the Lord. And you need to see that. So Paul's saying to them that if you want to be a leader, you be a leader by putting other people first. That doesn't mean you're going to be left out in the cold and get nothing. In fact, this all ends up with him saying you're going to be more blessed because you gave to others. Because you get more of a blessing when you give than when you receive. So he said, I was always regarding your welfare as more important than my own. And then he says something else that's important for us as parents, as grandparents, as uncles, as aunts, as leaders in any area of our lives, and, and definitely as ministers in the local church. He says, there was a continuous uh, plotting of the religious establishment against my life. And you know about those things. That the religious establishment, that's what he means when he talks about the Jews. They were always trying to bring me down and they were even trying to kill me. And he says, you know, I didn't act tough when I was around you. I didn't hide my tears. How many times as parents do we feel like we need to hide our tears, hide our pain? You know, but they need to see that. See that we're real people going through real things so they can follow us and understand that's how my parents got through that. I heard their prayers. I saw their tears. He said, you saw my tears. You saw how I endured great trials and afflictions. And on top of it all, you saw my steadfastness, that I was always with you, that in the midst of it all, when I could have run away and when I should have run away, I never left you and I never quit. And I never left until the Holy Spirit led me to leave that place. So that's number one, steadfastly present. Number two is courageously honest. Honest. Look at verse 20. In verse 20 it says, How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and from teaching you publicly and from house to house. There's a lot said in that. He's saying that I never compromised the truth, but I made very clear to you those things which would truly cause you to profit. And you know, when you make clear to other people the things that will cause them to profit, that may end up with you not profiting because people don't always want to hear those things. Am I right? But he says, you know that I always told you the truth and it took a lot of guts because it would have been simpler to tell you kind of a half-truth that would have caused me to profit at your expense. I mean, you know that Paul could have set up shop in Ephesus. You know, he could have lived another 40 years in Ephesus. He could have had a really sweet Ephesian retirement plan. You know, he could have just been living on top of the world in this church because these people loved him. He was there for three years, day and night. And they all showed up for his meetings. They all were taking note on his sermons. You know, this is Paul. This is one place where he could have felt at home, but he didn't allow himself the luxury of compromising the truth. He said, I always spoke the truth to you. I always told you the things that would 
actually cause you to profit even if they uh, were at my own expense. And then he says this, I did it publicly. You know why he did it publicly? To hold their feet to the fire. Let's think about it. So they have no excuse. He's giving them hard truths. And hard truths need to be made public so that people hear them. And when it's made public, and that means he was preaching these things to them. Then they have an understanding of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is speaking to them. I, I've told, you know, said this a lot of times, but it happens all the time. I'll preach a sermon and someone will say, oh, who told you about that? Such and such in my life. How did you know about that? And I didn't know anything. That was just the Holy Spirit making it real to you because it comes publicly. The Word of God is designed. Did you know that it's wonderful that we have Bibles? And I encourage you to read your Bible every day. I really do. But when you read your Bible, I would give you something. Just, just challenge you with something. From the time I've been uh, was in high school, I started doing this. If you read it out loud to yourself, find a private place to get alone and read it out loud to yourself, you always get more out of it. Because I want to tell you something. The Bible was written, the Word of God was written, for the purpose of reading it publicly. Sometimes people think, well, why does Pastor Kevin read so many verses? We sure could get these sermons over faster if he didn't read all those verses. We can read them on our own. But that's not true. It was designed to be read publicly. And Paul told Timothy, you pay attention to the public reading of Scripture. How many of you listen to that guy reading the Bible on that radio channel when you're driving down the road sometimes. can't remember the guy's name. Man, I just love listening to that guy. He's kind of monotone, not so exciting, but he's just reading the Bible. I get so much revelation just out of hearing him read the Bible. I mean, I get to go, i got to add that to my sermon. Man, the Lord just spoke that to me, and he's not giving any commentary. He's just reading the Bible out loud. So when it's done publicly, it puts us in a position where we can't escape from it. Everybody heard that. But he also said, I did it from house to house, which means I did it privately in your lives. He doesn't say, I gave you good counseling. Now, everybody looks at a pastor today as somebody that's going to give counseling, that's going to give advice, that's going to give you direction in your life. And sometimes that's possible. But I can promise you, if you come to me for counseling, you're just going to hear me say to you, well, the Bible says this. The Bible says that because if you're just going to follow, you know, some psychological advice that I have, it's probably going to fail because I don't have a whole lot. If, if I did, I, I'd probably be you know, somewhere else besides pastoring a church. I'd be a psychiatrist somewhere making the big bucks, you know what I'm saying? Take these drugs, take those drugs, everything's going to be okay. You know, but this is what the Bible says. I'm telling you, that's all that works. It really is all that works. And I know that in my life. So as parents, as, as leaders, whatever area of life we're in, we need to be giving people the word of God. And that's done publicly, but it's also done privately. You know why it's done privately? Because then people really know that it comes from the heart. But this is really for them. This is the word of God for them. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 of this passage in chapter 20. It says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now this phrase, I testify to you this day, should probably be translated, it's more better translated as, I call you to witness this day. I call you to give testimony this day. He's saying to them, you know these things about me. You've heard these things. You've seen these things. And he says, I call you to give witness today. I call you to raise your right hand, put your, or put your right hand in the Bible, raise your left hand, and swear today that you know this is true. 
He's not going to let these Ephesian elders get away without them admitting that this is the truth, that I didn't, that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now, Paul's not doing this because he needs their confirmation. He's doing this because he's passing the torch to them. And he wants them to understand the severity, how important it is to be innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, courageously honest. I never shrank back from declaring to you that. Now, if you've ever declared the whole purpose of God to someone, if you've ever told someone, and I'm not saying you know, you're in a fight and you just blab and speak your mind. Everybody's done that. That doesn't take a lot of courage. But I'm saying you really, in the peace of God, and you know God's spoken this to your heart. And remember, shepherding doesn't mean hitting people over the head with stuff. You know, we speak the truth in love. Being courageously honest has nothing to do with being rude to people, okay? But when you really have a word from God, and you know that you need to put that into a person's life, and you know that they don't want to hear it, it takes courage to do that. And it takes courage to find a way to make that truth accessible to them. Because it doesn't do anybody good, any good if you just say, you know, you're a sinner and you're going to hell goodbye. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the purpose of bringing the truth to people is that it would change their lives, right? And so Paul says, you know, I didn't shrink back from, from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. I told you everything. You know, Jesus said that there's nothing the Father has revealed to me which I have not revealed to you. Have you ever read the Gospels and thought, well, there, I, I wish I knew the other stuff Jesus did. I wish I heard some of the other teachings he had, because John says, if we were to write down everything he did and said, it would fill up all the libraries of the world. It's a metaphor, of course, and on the other hand, there weren't that many libraries back then, but the point is, it would be so much you'd never be able to read it all. But Jesus, what we have in the Gospels is everything. Jesus didn't hide anything from us. He told us the whole truth, the whole counsel of God. Everything we need to know for life and godliness is contained in the Scripture. And Paul said to, to them, I revealed this all to you. I laid it all out to you. I did not shrink back from that. So I am innocent of the blood of all men. Look with me over at Ezekiel chapter 3. Where does that come from, innocent of the blood? Well, that comes from the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 3. And as I read this, Hear the voice of God speaking this to your heart. Ezekiel chapter 3. When Ezekiel, as a very young man, remember, please, teenagers, remember, these people, when they were called to ministry, they were teenagers. Some of them, like Samuel, were little children. This isn't something that you're going to get when you're 50 years old. I mean, you can if you miss out on it. But this is something you're a lot more likely to get when you're 17 years old. Ezekiel chapter 3. And it says in verse 17, God speaking to him. He says, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. What's that? It's an overseer, a bishop, a shepherd, an elder. I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them for me. Not when you think of something. Not when you read something in a book somewhere. But when you hear it directly from my mouth, warn them for me. And when I say to the wicked... You will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. 
Now, I don't even know to the extent what that means. I don't want to know what that means to the extent. <laughs> but it sounds pretty serious to me. That if he gives you a word to speak to a wicked man and you don't care, you won't go to Nineveh like Jonah wouldn't go to Nineveh. I mean, he did eventually. But if he had refused to go to the end, God would have required all the blood of Nineveh from Jonah's hand. And so he says this to Ezekiel. In verse 19, he says, Yet if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered yourself. So, like I said, I mean, I preach the same sermon if nobody showed up. Because you don't preach it because somebody needs it. You preach it because God gives it to you to say. You understand? So if you warn them, if you tell them, if you preach the gospel to them, if you share Jesus with them, if you give them the word of God and they reject it, well, that's not on you. And you don't need to worry about that. You just be faithful to the Lord. You know, so much of ministry is done today with these modern ideas of we've got to answer the needs that people have around us, where the whole social gospel thing comes from. And, you know, there's you know, something to it. You know, we see a need. We want to help people in their lives. James said that if someone comes to you and they're hungry and they're cold, and you say, oh, God bless you, and you don't feed them or clothe them, you know, that that's just a nonsense. That's not faith. Uh, but so there is something in that, but we go overboard with that. We're going to try to answer people's needs. So we get this whole seeker-friendly church thing, or we don't want to preach sermons that put people off, you know. We don't want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, we just want to make sure everybody's comfortable at church. And the whole goal, of course, is to get a really big church, and then you get a lot of money, and then we can do more for Jesus. But, but that's not the gospel. That's not how Paul preached. And none of you want to have a husband like that. None of you want to have a wife like that. None of you want to have parents like that. I mean, at the end of the day, all of you kids really don't want your parents just to let you do everything you want to do. And you say, oh, yeah, you don't know anything, Pastor. <laughs> I'm saying when you get older, you're going to be happy. That at least they tried to teach you something. You know, maybe they sent you to the pink house to learn how to dance and you still can't dance. Please don't expect me to dance. I, I still can't. But at least I know I can't dance, right? If I had never gone to the pink house, I would have probably thought I was a great dancer. So, I mean, you know, there's something in it anyway. And uh, so God says to them, uh, if you tell them and they don't listen, that's not on you. Verse 20. Again, when a righteous man, so now he's talking about church members, you know, righteous people. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, thank God that he puts obstacles before us when we turn away from our righteousness. He will die. And since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin. And his righteous deeds, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. That's what I was talking about. You can run your race beautifully, but if you fail at the last mile, nothing will be remembered of that. However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you have delivered yourself. Now listen to verse 22. The hand of the Lord was on me there, and he said to me, Get up, go out to the plain, and there I will speak to you. So I got up and went out to the plain. And behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there like the glory which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. And the Spirit then entered me and made me stand on my feet. And he spoke with me and said to me, Go shut yourself up in your house as for you, son of man. They will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. We're going to see this with Paul. Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be mute and cannot be a man who rebukes them. 
for they are a rebellious house. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He just told him that you have to go and rebuke them, and if you don't, their blood's going to be on your hands. And now he's saying to them, to him, that I'm going to make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you can't even speak. Doesn't seem to make much sense until you need to read the next verse. Verse 27. He says, but when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Go back over to Acts chapter 20. So God's simply saying to them, we've got too much, what they call in Russian, boltovnya, I don't even know how to say it in English. Too much blabbing, 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 blabbing. Instead of listening to God, and speaking what God speaks. That's what Paul is saying to them. I was a person who held my tongue when it came to what I think. But when it comes to what God says, I spoke that truth to you always. You know, one of the things they accused Paul of in Corinth, if you read First and Second Corinthians, one of their accusations against him is that he's very weak in person. They said he's not really a very good preacher. One of the reasons is in Corinth, they had a very high Greek culture. And Paul's command of the Greek language would have been much less than his command of the Aramaic, his birth language. He had command of the Greek language, but perhaps he wasn't the greatest orator in Greek. I don't know. Perhaps he wasn't the greatest orator in his birth language either. They said he's weak in person, but he's strong in his letters. They said when he's in person, he's like, you know... You know, he doesn't seem very bold, but he writes these letters once he leaves town and writes these letters back to us. They're almost rude. They're so straightforward. But they didn't understand that when Paul was with them, he never spoke things to them except what God was speaking. And when God spoke to him, he spoke it in truth. He never shrank. Never was one to shrink back from that. So let's go to verse 21 of Acts chapter 20. So, so far we have these two qualities of a man of God. He's steadfastly present. He is with you. Uh, number two, he is courageously honest, but in God's way, speaking the truth in love. Verse 21 of Acts chapter 20. He says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The third quality I want to give you, I've just put it as three words. He was undaunted. That means he wasn't afraid. He was unchanging, he stayed the same, and he was unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He taught, and when he preached, he always had just one single, simple message, and it is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel. Go with me over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, where Paul says to the Romans in verse 14, he says, I am under obligation. In the King James, I like the way it says it better. It says, I am a debtor. I have a debt to pay, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager or ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So Paul said three things to the Romans. 
And these three things are encapsulated in what he says here in verse 21. Number one, he said, I know that I have a debt to pay to every one of you. You know, as a leader, we need to understand that we have a debt to pay to people. As people of God, we need to understand that we have a debt to pay. It's very clear in the scripture what that debt is, because the scripture says, owe no one, uh, owe nothing to, or do not owe anything to any man, except the debt of love that can never be repaid. We have a debt to honor people. We have a debt to love people. We have a debt. They deserve to hear the truth of the gospel. And if we don't preach that gospel to them, who will hear that gospel? Who will, who will preach that to them? Here am I. Send me, Lord. So Paul, when he was in his ministry and the things that he did in life, he didn't approach them as this is a burden to me. He approached it as the opportunity to pay his debt back to Jesus. For everything that Jesus has done to me, I'm going to minister the gospel to other people. So he said, I'm a debtor. Number two, he said, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. There's a lot said in that. I am ready and I am eager and I've got it all prepared. I am instant, in season and out of season, as the Bible says. I am ready. Do you ever come into a situation in life where you wish you would have been ready because the door opens and you have the opportunity to preach the gospel to people? Well, as a leader or as a parent, you know, I've said this before when we're talking about children, raising children and things, but it's just, it just means a lot to me. That um, years ago, I either read in a book or heard a guy preaching, I can't even remember, but he was, he was talking about raising children. And he made a statement, it was the only thing I remembered out of the whole thing, because it, it just, it, it was so true. I knew it to be true. He said that parents want to have uh, quality time with their children, but they don't spend quantity time with their children. And he said, you cannot plan quality time. Just try it. All of us have that experience. Now we're going to have quality time. And nobody's in the mood for quality time and nothing works out. You know what I'm saying? Quality time happens almost by accident. And you'll miss it if you're not there, if you're not present. You don't have quality time unless you have quantity time. Because you don't know when the quality time will come. So Paul said, I am ready to preach the gospel to you. And then the third thing he said is, I am unashamed of the gospel. I am a debtor, I am ready, and I am unashamed. I know, I know from personal experience that it is a struggle, especially for young people that live in a culture of peer pressure. You feel shame because of the gospel. You're not really ashamed of the gospel, but you don't want to embarrass yourself by talking about Jesus with other people too boldly. Because you know people are going to make fun of you, or at least that's what you think. Maybe they will, or maybe they won't. You'd be surprised how often they won't, how often they've been waiting just for someone to speak up, how often they've been waiting to hear the truth. But we have that very real feeling of being ashamed. And then we get more ashamed. It's like this spiral of shame. Because we didn't say anything, then we're ashamed of ourselves. And then we get more ashamed of the gospel and more ashamed of ourselves. It's just a lie and a deception from Satan. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And here's why. Because I know that I owe a debt to these people. That Jesus gave it all to me. And he said, and because I'm ready. You know, when you practice something, if uh, you're going to 
be in a play at school or somewhere like that, you know, you, you go to rehearsals. Uh, the worship team has rehearsals because you practice something. And the more you practice it, the more familiar you are with it and the more ready you are to do it. Well, why not do that with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Just imagine yourself standing in front of the mirror. Imagine yourself sharing that with someone or practice it on your brothers or sisters or your husband or wife or somebody else. Say, I know I need to speak with this person. It's God's put this on my heart. Well, practice it first. Make yourself ready. Prepare yourself ahead of time. Memorize scriptures. Know what the Bible says. And be ready to share that with other people. So Paul said to them in verse 21, I solemnly... I was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance for God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to talk just for a minute about this word solemnly testify before I move on, because this is really important. In the Greek, solemnly testifying, as I have it in my version, is one Greek word. And it means, if we were looking for one English word to translate it, it's the word asseverate, asseverate. And you probably don't know what that means, because I couldn't figure out what that meant either. So I looked it up online. And here's what it means. A severate means to emphatically declare something. Emphatically declare something. To solemnly state it as the truth. To affirm it as the unequivocal truth. It's what you do when you really believe something. When you really believe it, you know, have, you know, have you ever accused a, a kid of doing something he didn't do? When I was a kid, I don't give bad ideas to kids today, but when I was a kid, I loved that moment. I don't know why. When I got in trouble for something that I didn't do, and I proved I didn't do it, my brother did it. It was like that moment when you're the hero of the movie. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you know that. That's a bad thing to have. Some kind of pride mixed up in that. But, you know, if you've ever accused a kid of doing something that he didn't do, he's going to give you that unequivocal truth. He's going to demand that you know and you agree that he did not do this. Now, that's that kind of feeling that's in this word when he says, I solemnly testify. I didn't just tell them about Jesus. And I like that song, and I like it on our signs. It wasn't just, let me tell you about my Jesus. It was <laughs> solemnly testifying about repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there was no doubt in anybody's mind. They might have not believed what Paul told them, but they knew that Paul actually believed this. There was no doubt in his mind, in anybody's mind, that he believed this. Now, here's what's interesting about this word. In the book of Acts, I'm going to give you some verses. Describe it out. I'm not going to look them up. But this word is used over and over again. And it's a really strong word. And it's used in Acts 240, 8.25, 10.42, 18.5, 20.21, what we just read. And in 20.24, it's used again. And it's also used in 20.23 about the Holy Spirit. So it tells me this, that this is, listen, there is no other way to preach the gospel. You might as well keep your mouth shut if you're going to be wishy-washy about it. Solemnly testifying to the truth is the only way to tell people the truth. You do believe it or you wouldn't be sitting here on a Sunday morning at 11.04. You believe this in your heart. So have the courage to solemnly testify this. I started out by saying this morning 
that there's a, you know, this question being asked of the church, where are these people of God today? Because let's be honest, it's very difficult to find a person like this today in leadership. Can you find a person like this in Washington, D.C.? Because I don't see anyone, Republican or Democrat, that stands in this position that would risk their entire career to solemnly testify to the truth. There might be a couple. There might be a couple, but it's a rare thing. It's a rare thing to find this in a family. It's a rare thing to find this in schools, to find this uh, in a church. But this is what a person of God looks like. So in verse 23, in verse 23, uh, Paul says, I'll read this in a minute, but he says, the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me. It's that same word. So here's the thing. Paul's telling them, the reason I'm so black and white with you is because the Holy Spirit is so black and white with me. I'm just repeating to you, it's not because I'm better than you. It's not because I'm so special. It's not even because I do everything perfectly. You've seen my tears. You've seen the trials I go through. You've heard me say I'm sorry. And parents, if you don't know how to say you're sorry to your kids and apologize, you need to learn. Because they'll never learn that if they don't see that in you. But he's saying to them, the reason I am so black and white, the reason I'm so categorical about these things, the reason I don't have any compromise, it's just because that's how the Holy Spirit is with me. And only the truth will bring profit into our lives. So look with me at verse 22 through 25, and I'll end with this section. It says, And now, behold, bound in spirit. The fourth quality I want to give to you today is a man of God, a person of God, is one who is bound by the Holy Spirit. And now, behold, bound in spirit, or bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life bonds, by the way, that isn't stocks and bonds in the sense of money. It stops and bonds in the sense of being arrested and having chains put on your hands and your feet. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course, as his race, his marathon, and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly, there is that word again, of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So the fourth quality of a man of God, of a person of God that we see in the life of Paul, and this is just the first half of this message, there's going to be more coming, but the fourth quality is this, he's a person, or she is a person, who is bound by the Holy Spirit. Literally, chains are on their life. They have bound themselves. You know, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. You know, I think you know what a yoke is. You know, these old-fashioned pictures of two oxen walking side by side and the thing that's over their neck and holds them together so they can pull the plow together, right? That's a yoke. Jesus said, everybody has a yoke. Jesus said that. Everybody has a yoke. He said, come to me if you're weary and you're heavy laden. Because every person is in chains. Bob Dylan in his Christian faith phase 
saying, you got to serve somebody, if anybody remembers that song. Everybody serves somebody. But Jesus says, come to me, and I will take the heavy burden off of you, and I will put you in my yoke, and it will be a blessing to you. It won't always be uh, easy in the sense that you say easy, but it'll be easy in the sense I say easy. Because all you've got to do is follow the Holy Spirit. Bound by the Holy Spirit. Paul's telling them that I took the yoke of Jesus on myself. I did it way back in chapter 9 of this book. And I bound my life to accomplishing the will of God. I bound my life to obedience to the will of God. And at the end of the day, though I falter, though I fail, I promise you this, when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to get back to it. I'm going to do the will of God and nothing else. A righteous man falls seven times, the book of Proverbs says, that he always gets back up. Paul's not saying I've been perfect or that you will be perfect. In fact, when we get to the second half of this, he's going to warn them that there's going to be some bad things happening and some of them are going to fail. But he does say this, that a man of God is bound. He's in chains through the Holy Spirit. And he's going to do what God has called him to do. He says, I do not consider my life of any account. The Greek word for life here, Pastor Kevin preached about it last week, is the word psyche, and it's our word soul. I do not consider my soul. It's where we get the word psychology and psychiatrists and all that stuff from. I do not consider my soul of any account. The Greek word for account is the Greek word logos. It's a word or as dear to myself. In other words, Paul is saying, as for me, I consider that my life isn't even worth mentioning. That my precious soul isn't worth anything compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a very thing, and I won't open it again, but Matthew chapter 16, that Kevin was reading last week, the other Kevin, where it says that if you find your life or you find your soul, you will lose it. You will destroy it. If you seek after what's best for you in this life, you will constantly be sapping your soul of all of its strength. And you will destroy your very own soul. But if you lose your soul, if you give it up for the sake of the gospel, for Jesus, you will truly find your life in Jesus Christ and not just trifle away the life that you live. From the very moment... On the road to Damascus when Jesus arrested him. Because Jesus arrested him that day. Jesus put chains on him that day. That's why he's not afraid of the chains in Jerusalem. He's already chained to Jesus. Paul says, I've been running a marathon and this is the last mile. I've been fulfilling a ministry given to me by Jesus. From the very beginning, I've known that I would suffer great things and I'm not afraid to suffer those things even now. We're going to see... Uh, and I've already mentioned this, but we're going to see as we go through this story that everyone around him is going to be saying to him, no, Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. There were other periods in his life, like when he was in the city of Damascus. Do you remember that? That's back in Acts chapter 10. He's in the city of Damascus, and they let him down in a basket over the wall because he knows it's not time for him to die yet. It's not time for him to be put in jail yet. Okay. There's other times when Paul runs away because the Holy Spirit tells him to be run away or be secreted away. But this time, he says, no more. Nobody's going to convince me not to go to jail this time because I know my time has come. How does he know that? Because he's carrying his cross. And just like Jesus knew it. 
In other words, several times in the Gospels when they could have killed Jesus, but he just walks away from them. Because he says, my time has not come. But when the time comes, he goes right into the fire. He goes right into the persecution. Because he knows that that time has come. And Paul understands that. He says, everything I can do for you as a church, I've already done. As you notice, he says uh, here in uh, verse 25, uh, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom. Among whom I went about preaching the kingdom. Literally in the Greek, it could be translated like this. Preaching the kingdom among whom I have told it all through in complete detail. What it means is this. The whole time I was with you, I was preaching the kingdom of God. And I've told you the whole story. He's saying, my ministry is done in Ephesus. There's nothing else for me to tell you. I'm passing the torch on to you. There's nothing left for me to preach to. It's time for me to go because that's the leading of the Holy Spirit. I am bound in the Spirit. And so since my ministry is finished, he tells them that you're not going to see my face again. They're going to be weeping and crying about that later in the second half of this. But I am going to go and I'm going to do what Jesus has called me to do in life. A man of God knows when to let go by the will of God. And he knows how long to hold on by the will of God. He's not afraid to make those changes. Now, I don't know what Paul's feeling on the inside of him. Sometimes we make bold speeches like this because we need to encourage ourselves, right? I mean, Paul's just a man. He's just like I am. There could have been some real fear and trepidation that he's feeling on the inside of him. But he doesn't go by those feelings. He speaks with the word of God by faith. And I believe that Paul encourages himself with this speech. That Paul prepares himself to face the battle with this speech, like a soldier going out to battle, like a knight in ancient times holding vigil overnight and preparing his heart for the battle on the next day. That's what Paul is doing here. He says, you're not going to see my face again. But if you've ever read to the end of the book of Acts, you know that everything that went before this was only preparation for what God wanted to do after this. How could a Jew, who according to history, the description of Paul in history is that he was a pretty short guy, that he kind of had a hump back and a really big nose. The nose part I'm pretty sure of, okay? Because this is a really Jew of Jews, and how could this Jewish rabbi ever stand before the emperor of Rome and preach the gospel to him? The only way it was gonna happen is if he was arrested and taken to Rome and forced into the presence of Nero. And God knew that. And Paul doesn't know how it's going to happen. He says, I don't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. I only know the Holy Spirit is telling me to go there. You know, we have a lot of examples of this in Scripture. And the first one is the father of our faith, Abraham. And when he's still in Babylon, or still in Ur of the Chaldees, what, what does God say to him? And remember, God speaks to him when he doesn't even go to church and nobody believes in God. The Bible tells us that all of his relatives were moon worshipers. And somehow, Abraham hears God's voice and doesn't doubt that it's God speaking. God says to him, take your wife, take your family, and leave this place and go to a place I'm going to show you but you don't know where it is. And so he just does it. That's a man of God, a woman of God person of faith that obeys the leading of the Holy Spirit 
without knowing what's going to happen next and trusting God in that. So I believe that we are at a place as a church, and it's not just our church. It's churches all across this nation and all around the world. The churches I know of, I know that they're at this place. It's a crossroads. We're in the end times. I do believe that Jesus is coming back soon. I do believe that things in this world are going to get worse before they get better. And I believe that we are at a crossroads and at a place where God is wanting to take us from the first phase of our ministry, or maybe it's been one, two, three, four, five phases of your ministry. I don't know what you would sense in your life, but he wants to take us across the river, take us across the ocean into the real phase of our ministry. Thing that he's really had for us all along and everything before has just been preparation that we have completed something in our lives I sense that in my life that there's a sense of completion of a certain stage or a certain something I can't even put it to words exactly but I know that God has something better for us going forward I know that our best days are not behind us that our best days they lie ahead of us on the other side of our obedience. So a man of God is bound by the Spirit to that obedience to follow Jesus. Let's stand together. Oh, we have a worship song again. Our worship team. Father, I just thank you for your word. I just pray that there's a lot said today, but really it's not very much, Lord. But as we meditate in these scriptures in Acts chapter 20, that until we would see even more things out of the life of Paul. Thank you so much, Lord. I truly do thank you. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.